Hello and welcome to interview number two as part of my dissertation by portfolio for Royal Roads University. I am Nicolette Richet and I'm your host of the Eat Real to Heal podcast. And you are currently listening to a series of nine podcasts that includes me interviewing experts from all around North America who have experience in food systems, food security, food sovereignty, and Indigenous health the health of BIPOC people, Indigenous Black people of color, and more. All of these experts, they are people with lived experience, academic experience, work experience, play experience. We are centering the voices of the individuals who have a direct knowledge and experience that includes traditional ecological knowledge and their research experience as well. So all voices are centered here on this podcast. And I hope you enjoy this nine part series. Please go back and listen to interview number one with Dr. Lickers Xavier. Please listen to all nine podcasts and then go ahead and share it with your loved ones so that they may learn about these very important topics. And of course, <clears throat> please write to us at nicolette at richerhealth.ca and do let us know what you think about this series. We're not just victims of the circumstances that we find ourselves in urban environments, unhealthy environments. We know how to survive. We are resilient. We can we figure out ways. So if that means you're shopping at the bodega or the gas station or the corner store until you can do better, then do what you have to do because we always have. And I need for us to get up off of people's necks about that. If it means I'm going there and all I can do is get the cabbage leaves because everybody else got the cabbage, then tell me how I can make whatever with the cabbage leaves, whether that's to roll up some rice and ground beef or ground turkey inside the cabbage leaf and now I have this dish or that dish, or it's just to cut them up and chop them up and pan fry. Help people where they are as opposed to always making us feel like we're behind the eight ball because this society does enough of that. Mm -hmm. This next interview is Dr. Syke Williams Forson, who is the professor and chair of the Department of American Studies at the University of Maryland College Park. She is an affiliate faculty member of the theater, dance and performing studies and departments of anthropology, African-American studies the Harriet Tubman Department of Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies, and the Consortium of Race, Gender and Ethnicity. And for those of you who do not know who Harriet Tubman is, I actually have a tattoo on my arm that um, has HT on it in honor of Harriet Tubman for freeing many, many slaves through the Underground Railroad all the way from the South to even Canada. It's a brilliant documentary. It's brilliant books. Many books have been written about Harriet Tubman. She is truly the world's true 100% Wonder Woman. Now, Williams Forson is a material culturalist who examines the lives of African Americans living in the United States from the late 19th century to the present. Her research explores the ways in which Black people broadly defined engage their material worlds. And this is in relationship to food, food cultures, as well as historical legacies of race and gender misrepresentation. 
She's conducted extensive research throughout the United States in this area using intersectionality, cultural studies, popular culture, and more to inform our understanding of these phenomena. So let's welcome Dr. Syke Williams-Forson to the show. And please go ahead and share the show with everybody. We need to spread this important information that all of the participants in this study have contributed. Thank you so much. And let's jump in. Welcome everyone to the Eat Real to Heal show. I am very honored, extremely grateful, and very excited to have Dr. Psyche Williams-Forson from the University of Maryland College Park on the show. This is our second interview in a 12-part um, series for my PhD dissertation. And Dr. Psyche Williams-Forson is our second interview. So welcome today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So let me ask you, how did you end up being at the Department of American Studies and doing this incredible work in the world that you are doing around food, culture, the history of Black food, soil? There's so many topics we're about to get into, but what was that pivotal point for you when you, when you decided that this is the work you wanted to be doing? Great. Thank you for having me. Um, Thank you for being I, here. I started graduate school in 1991. And it's important to know that um, that was a watershed or important moment in American history because there was this resurgence, if you will, in Black feminist thought. And Black feminist thought is a body of scholarship that privileges and recognizes the contributions, um, academic and aside, from, of Black women. So for example, a number of 19th century novels had been recovered by Oxford University Press and Dr. Henry Louis Gates, and they had been reprinted. Um, a couple of years prior to that, Alice Walker had resurrected um, about a decade or within the decade preceding, Alice Walker had revived the life of Zora, you know, uh, anthropologist and author Zora Neale Hurston. Um, Patricia Hill Collins, uh, who was a noted sociologist in America and, and internationally, um, had written uh, Black Feminist Thought. As, as a model and as a theoretical model and as an understanding of, of recognizing that Black women have things to say. So it was a very important moment. Darlene Clark Hine, Elsa Barkley Brown, and others who were Black women historians, who are Black women historians, were really um, coming out in mass with a number of different writings about Black women's experiences in America. So it was an exciting time. I came to graduate school to study Black women's literature, but I did it through American studies because I wasn't so much just interested in the literature, but in the whole social and cultural context and felt I could get that best through American studies. So <clears throat> as I was studying this work, one of the books that I was reading um, from that 19th century collection was Pauline Hopkins's uh, novel, Contending Forces. It was written in 1900. And I remember being just really amazed and impressed by the details that 
um, this author Hopkins put in her novel about the domestic life of Black people. I was up until that point had not seen that and had read, you know, pretty extensively. I've been reading since, um, you know, I was uh, a really young child, just reading all kinds of stuff. And I had never seen an author go to such detail. I mean, she talks about the main character runs a boarding house. And so she talks about um, like the foods that they would prepare, the linens on the bed. And that was fascinating to me. And so I really became interested in the material culture of Black life, you know, the material world. Um, we see pictures, we read, uh, we see films, but do we really pay attention to the small details that are in these environments? And I am very much interested in those things. And so I began to talk about the material lives of Black people. And then, coincidentally, I was um, asked to serve as a graduate uh, research assistant for a professor in our department who was studying Jewish foodways. And I and she had me researching an article on a Jew on Jewish peddlers. And so I came across this term foodways and I said, what is that? I've never heard of that. And I wonder if black people have it, you know? <laughs> so I Google foodways in African-Americans and I shouldn't even say Google because I don't think Google was around then. No, this. I don't like, think this so. Is like, <laughs> this is like 94, 93. I don't think we had Google. We no, you went, to the right? you went to the library. I was in the library. <laughs> yeah, the microfiche, computer. microfiche. <laughs> right, on microfiche. I was, I, was, I was on the internet. That's all you can say, right? Because yeah. the internet was just really getting started. I was like, let me try this thing called the internet. Um, and... And also I was looking to see what the library may have, right? And so what I what ended up coming up for me were lots of cookbooks. Mm. And um, Vertemay Grosner's, um, you know, Vibration Cooking, Jessica Harris, Iron Pots and Wooden Spoons um, are the two I most remember, but there were several others. Um, and I said, okay, okay. Yeah, and as I was thumbing through, I'm like, I'm familiar with these foods, but why these foods? Mm -hmm. Why is it that these are the foods most associated with Black people? You know, because in my experience, we ate lots of different things. Um, and what kind of foods were in this cookbook that you were seeing? So in the cookbooks that I was seeing, you had a number of rice dishes, you had collard greens, you know, corn pudding, so different kinds of casseroles. I won't say mac and cheese, but things with sweet potatoes, mac and cheese being one mm -hmm. with marshmallows uh, in the sweet potatoes, um, black eyed peas. So many of the foods that you would expect to see associated with black people, lima beans and succotash. Again, I was familiar with those, but it wasn't clear to me why. Right. And so then, of course, over time, mm -hmm. we understand that because the majority of Black people came through the mouth of the South, um, many of the foods that we are at least initially introduced to and familiar with are Southern foods. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's why when people say, well, that's not a Black food, it's a Southern food, it, you're very correct in that the food itself is grown in the South. 
some of those foods, of course, came um, to the Americas by way of uh, slave ships um, through bartering uh, with merchants along the seaways, as well as with human cargo of African and Caribbean people. And so we know, for example, that a lot of the slave ships were provisioned with foods from the continent. Um, the work of Judith Carney, um, uh, Sodewe Muscatkeem, Muscatkeem, um, and I'm sure I'm butchering her name, but it, the name of her book is Terror at Sea, mm -hmm. I think. Um, um, and, or actually that's not it, but I'll get the name of it and pronounce it correctly. Um, but uh, we know from those kinds of um, uh, um, uh, readings that lots of foods were brought um, by way of, as I said, um, slave ships. And so I just began studying food in that context, right? Trying to understand um, what was going on for Black people. Um, and so that really is how I got started in my, in my search for uh, African-American food ways. Um, and then it has evolved, of course, over time. I love this story because it just reminds me of so many different um, pieces that my mom brought back. I was born in Malawi, Africa, mm -hmm. and I came out here when I was four. My mom was 27. Um, she was young and, you know, she brought back a few things that she could. And since then, she's gone back home. And every time she brings back different, you know, I have this beautiful bamboo flat basket. But, you know, mm -hmm. now you remind me of it because it's in my room it's on my wall but it was what mm -hmm. with my grandmother and all my family members and everyone probably in Malawi used to separate the husks from the grains and mm -hmm. you know with flipping the rice and flipping mm -hmm. the maize and flip you know whatever seeds and everything but um, I had to actually look up what a material culturalist was when mm -hmm. I was um, doing a little bit of research mm -hmm. on you for my PhD Mm -hmm. um and so that was the first time I actually heard that term I oh, love yeah. it I love mm -hmm. it but I love how it brings up so many different um yeah you could think about all the different tools that were used in the kitchens or the cloth or the you know sure. absolutely everything but I really love that you asked why mm -hmm. why are these our foods mm -hmm. you know that part right. I think is really really a critical um important piece. And I asked that similar question, why do decolonized foods keep us free of cancer and chronic disease and diabetes mm -hmm. and heart disease? So yes, I have that curiosity bug like you do. So mm -hmm. tell me more about um, what you discovered in this process of, you know, reading mm -hmm. about what, vibrational cooking and when you saw these cookbooks and then you start to ask why, what happened next for you? Right. Well, I want to go back and, and, and make sure that I get this this um, particular book um, title correct. It's Slavery at Sea, okay. Terror, mm -hmm. Terror, Sex, and Sickness in the Middle Passage. And it's by a scholar named Sawande Mustakim. 
Perfect. Team. Yeah. We will find that and put that yeah. in our show notes. So yeah. Absolutely. It is it is a critical, I think, um, text, slavery at sea, because she talks using primary sources. Um, and that is travelers' accounts, right? Mm -hmm. And using um and using um uh, the their their log books. She tells us what was recorded um, as being on enslaved um, ships, but also, um, especially the foods, mm -hmm. right? And so um, her book is very, very good for for what it tells us about um, about all of that. Then there's also a 19th century slave diet, which is a link you can find through the National Park Service at the U.S. Department of Interior. Mm. And it will go over for you what um, the 19th century um, slave uh, diet would have looked like. And, and so to that end, I want to refer people to um, a, an exhibition I curated called Fire and Freedom. And it is on foodways of the ch early Chesapeake, food and enslavement in early America, right? Wow. And, and so you can find it right online. It's an online exhibition. And um, yeah, and so you can find that to, to get more information. But in along those lines, as I studied Black people and food, I mostly looked a lot at the 19th century novel, but I also, because I was working on my master's thesis, by the time I, I developed my PhD um, idea, I knew I wanted to write on food, but I didn't know what food. <laughs> and I'll give you a PhD moment. I'm standing on the, on the street talking with one of my advisors and we're just chit-chatting and she said, yeah, well, we all know you're going to do food, Black people and food, but what food are you going to do? And I said, uh, I don't know. Oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Maybe collard greens? I don't know. I had no idea. And this was now about 96, 97. So I took some time um, between my last um, qualifying exam, a comprehensive exam, as we call it, <clears throat> and writing my proposal because I just had no idea what to write on. And then one day, as I was preparing for work, because at this point, you know, life had transitioned and, you know, I was in the middle of, of uh, getting married and some other things. Um, I heard a commercial that, and I was in another room, but it sounded like a black man doing an advertisement for KFC or Kentucky Fried Chicken, um, which is a very popular food, fast food restaurant establishment yes. in the US, right? Yeah, Canada too. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, yeah. so KFC, he was doing this, he was doing this uh, commercial and it, he sounded black. And then, so I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I've got a black man doing a commercial for KFC because it, up until then it was the kernel or it was just generic. So I went running in the room and I saw basketballs bouncing across the, the screen. So I said, uh-oh, you have a black voiceover 
basketballs and chicken. Mm-hmm. Now, when you put those three different elements together, it is suggestive of black people and chicken. Yeah. And this was now 99 uh, or close to 2000. And so I began to ask, are we in 2000 still associating black people with chicken? Yes, we are. Well, yes. And it gets worse. And so then around that same time, Tiger Woods, who's noted golfer, won the Masters tournament for the first time. And one of his fellow golfers said, told him, you know, okay, so you won, but tell that boy not to order fried chicken and collard greens or whatever the hell those people eat. Now he received considerable backlash, but here again, I asked the question, are we focusing on black people and chicken? And then um, the last thing that happened was there was an advertisement for a fraternity um, party um, on Martin Luther King's birthday, which had just become a national holiday. And the advertisement had a 40 ounce of beer, which was often associated with urban, but it's also associated with urban culture Mm -hmm. because it's the 40, it's called the 40. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was that and a bucket of chicken on the flyer. So the conflation of those three events at that moment really said to me, hey, I think I should study Black people and chicken and why we are still dealing with this stereotype, where the stereotype comes from, all that kind of stuff. So that's what I did. And interestingly, I I mean, I did it for a year and a half. I was really interested in these stereotypes. And when I did a Google, or again, I keep saying Google search, but when I did an internet search, I got tons of images, Mm. stereotyped images. Most of them were being sold on eBay and I purchased quite a few of them. So I got sheet music, greeting cards, um, postcards, what you call stereo views, which are just little, like about yay wide, long um, of the same image with these different captions. And they just, I mean, fascinating for a time that is way not too long ago, (laughs) (laughs) but also fascinating for the fact that we're still dealing with these stereotypes. And so as I began writing my doctoral thesis, like you, I was writing about that experience. And then I got tired of writing about that experience. Mm-hmm. Because to me, it was one that spoke of Black people from a standpoint of being looked at, from a standpoint of being victims. So yeah. one day I'm twirling around in my chair and and I'm trying to think about what I can do next with this project, because how much can you talk about stereotypes? And it, I was reminded of a folder that I had in an article that I had stuck in the folder from a colleague, um, Marcy uh, Cohen-Ferris, who has written extensively on Jewish food ways, especially in the Delta and the South. And she had sent me a clip about a fried chicken festival. And at the time, I had sort of socked it away because I wasn't really interested in talking about fried chicken. It's not really what my interest was. My interest was in Black people's association with chicken, 
over time. <clears throat> and so as I was looking at this image that she sent or this announcement about this fried chicken festival, I realized the picture on the image or the picture on the news uh, announcement was a, a group of black women who had platters of food that they were lifting up to at train windows. And I was like, wow, these are not reenactors. I had been studying historical documents for some time, you know, archives and so forth. So I knew that these were not reenactors. And so I pulled the thread and I called and found out where the festival was, blah, blah, blah. So long story short, I ended up going down to rural Virginia, not far from where I'm actually from. And I was looking at their lone room, which served as their African-American historical society. And I came across an interview that a woman by the name of Isabella Winston had given um, for the centennial celebration of her town. And she said, I'm a third generation waiter carrier. My mother was a waiter carrier before me and her mother before her. And she explained that the waiter carriers were basically what they are noted for in the census as chicken vendors. <clears throat> and these women had an established practice of selling chicken and other foodstuffs at the trains when they would depot or dock or stop in their town. Wow. And Miss Winston said, my mother built our house. She said, our mother built this place out of chicken legs. And when it burned down, she rebuilt it. Mm -hmm. And so that then is the title of my dissertation, which became my first book, which is Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food and Power. I'm so glad you because, told me that story because yeah. I was going to ask you, what is that? I haven't read it yet and yeah. I want to, but good. Yeah, so. well, that's where it comes from. It comes from Isabella Winston because wow. Miss Winston describes what many people have said about the women who meet the trains. You know, when I would go, when I was yeah. on tour talking about the book, people were like, she's talking about the women who meet the train. Well, you know, some have made light of it because they were like, you could find that at any whistle stop, any depot, train yeah. depot. But here's what's fascinating. It was an organized practice for these Black women to the point where it lasted for three generations. Mm -hmm. Okay, That is not something that you hear about often, right? Mm -hmm. And so three generations means that these women were doing this work at least the first of them during enslavement uh -huh. because the practice stopped somewhere around 1920, 1930 when refrigeration and, and um, air conditioning um, came to the trains because then they would stop letting the windows down. So it, it, then I began to go back even further to see where I could find other instances of black women selling chicken. And of course, we know this takes us all the way back to the continent where those Africans, most of the Africans who were brought to the Americas came with particular sets of agricultural knowledge. They came with knowledge of tobacco growth and, and uh, cotton and uh, indigo. And they were brought to the United States and to other part, other and to South America and the Caribbean, specifically for their types of knowledges. Mm -hmm. Right. So we often want to think of slavery as this benign kind of institution that happened at a point. 
slavery was a very deliberate and intentional yeah. means of building wealth yes. around the world. <clears throat> and so to build wealth deliberately, you have to have laborers and those laborers need particular skill sets. Black folks had a lot of skill sets and we were exploited and brutalized and so forth and so on for our skills and knowledge. And we were left uncompensated, um, tried to be dehumanized and so forth and so on, as we know. So my interest then was tell me what I can find about Black people in chicken. Mm -hmm. And I did. And so what ended up happening to that stereotype those stereotypes are put in one chapter. So what started out as a dissertation ended up being just one chapter of the story. Because the bigger story for me was the work of Black women and Black people more generally toward building the kind of wealth that we can establish in this country. Putting your children through college, mm -hmm. building your houses, opening up restaurants, feeding the hungry in your community. Mm -hmm. things that we have always done through mutual aid. So I trace that through literature. I trace it through um, real life experience. And then I also look at the ways in which Black women have performed culinary dozens and other kinds of fun things all in the name of making and cooking chicken. And if, if you will see in, in building houses, there are tons of sources that can, can contribute to our conversations some of which I'm critical of and others of which I'm discussing how and why Black people came to be associated with this food, but also the marvelous things that we've done with it. Mm -hmm. well, that's that's the long story about what I found around, <laughs> around that one food. And how you came, yeah, and how you came mm -hmm. to be here. This is, um, I love this backstory and it's really important. Um, it tells us a lot about yourself too and how, you know, when you pick up that thread and how you just keep following it, following it and following it. And then what it does is it opens up a much bigger, bigger story and shows that interconnected of um, interconnectedness of everything. Mm -hmm. But your story also reminds me about, um, um, about building, you know, this place out of chicken, building this out of chicken is when I was in Malawi three years ago, Four mm -hmm. years ago, just before COVID, I went to go see my grandmother mm -hmm. and in a tiny village, Chirtsulu, no electricity, no running water. So mm -hmm. barely any chicken. Like mm -hmm. there's a couple chickens that run around and mm -hmm. they might only eat them for a funeral or for some mm -hmm. really, really big mm -hmm. celebration where the chief would say, let's have a festival or like a, you mm -hmm. know, um, a gathering. But mostly it's all plant-based whole food for mm -hmm. the most part, except when I went to go visit our relatives in the city and in mm. the city, it was different. So my relatives in the village, no diabetes, no heart disease, people were mm. very healthy. And in the city, my relatives would question what I do. Like, why do you teach people how to eat plant-based whole food? We eat chicken, we eat this. And in fact, one of my aunties, she's very wealthy because she grows chickens and sells chickens. Mm. And then that coupled with what I saw there, the billboards in 2018 were all selling oil for the first time. And so even in my grandmother's village, if they got a little tiny plastic little cylinder of oil, they would be so excited. I mean, it wasn't enough to really fry anything, but it definitely was like, could make things a bit crispy mm -hmm. versus cooking in water. And so mm -hmm. in 2018, 
what we're starting to see in Malawi is the beginning of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, okay. So I, I think it's a couple of things going on that um, I like to um, share with people. And again, this is coming at this from a material approach, right? Um, and in my new book, Eating While Black, Food Shaming and Race in America, one of the things I want to do is open up these conversations around healthy eating. Mm -hmm. What is quote unquote healthy eating? What I heard you say was that when you move to industrialized urban areas where there are a host of factors that increase your um, stress, that increase your way of living as uh, much more production or, yeah, maybe not much more production oriented, but certainly more stress oriented. Mm -hmm. right then then we often may find in rural areas it's not to suggest that rural areas don't have their own stresses because farming itself is is hard work yes um and for a lot of rural areas for example in america they're underserved by health establishments and so forth mm -hmm. uh, and so um but ways of life are also somewhat smaller and people are a little bit more cocooned in those rural spaces. But when you move to in areas where, especially the cities, where you're exposed to much more pollutants um, of the soil, of the air, of the water, um, and so forth, I think you get a combination of things going on. You have the food factor and you have the inter... Uh, uh, intervention and inter interaction with a lot more of those social mm -hmm. determinants of health. Yes. Um, and so what I try to get people to think about or have a conversation about um, in Eating While Black is that food alone is not the thing that's killing Black people, um, especially not in America. It, it often is presented as if that is the case. But the reality is that, and you can encounter this whether you're in the city or if you're in any other area, but to be sure um, in American society, we have so many things that can kill us from state violence, police violence, um, domestic violence, um, centuries of trauma that have been left untreated that food factors in but is absolutely not the most important element and I say that because my argument is it becomes part of a anti-black racist agenda to assign all of that blame on food because if we can get you focused over here, then that keeps you unfocused on the host of systemic issues that are generational in the making that go all the way back to our ancestors being brought to this country. 
and for those ancestors who were born in this country. Being without the tools, the economic um, bedrock to help make their way in this society that requires those things for survival. And so when we cling to foods that many would deem as unhealthy, when many of our older and aged relatives and some of our younger ones as well, there are a host of factors, again, that have to be considered. Taste, <laughs> access, um, availability, affordability, um, knowledge of how to prepare these foods and so forth. So there's a host, host of things. And so I, I really do try and remind us that we're dealing with objects like anything else. And objects are very difficult to let go of and we acquire them specifically because they help give our lives meaning. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about you need to shift and you need to change and you need to take away this and you need to start doing that, um, again, I try to encourage us to have different conversations as opposed to eating either or, how can we eat and but, and mm -hmm. also get some tools to manage our mental health, our emotional health, our social health, our cultural health, because as we're moving about, that can be trauma traumatic for us, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's voluntary or involuntary movement, people want the things that they are connected to, to help them feel at home. Mm -hmm. And so let's try to open up that conversation. Well, we can just close up this interview now because that is a question that I want to ask. So this is exactly what I did discover in my research because I've been hyper-focused on food for the last 15 years because that is what I've seen help get my client results. We clean up their diet, their illness disappears, they're off their meds, they don't have to get surgeries, they become you know productive members of society meaning in their family in their career in their spiritual world um in their relationships everywhere and so i've been focused on food but in doing this research um i did realize that what everybody was talking about in the research what governments what health officials what you know policymakers were talking about they were saying it's the food, it's the obesity, it's the alcohol consumption, and it's the lack of exercise that's contributing to the chronic disease. And this is exactly what I was, with one of my research questions was, was it's not those things. It is far, far deeper, greater, more systemic, um, and it, that's important. And you really summarized really what... Um, what I've come to understand. So when you say the taste, the availability, the access, the affordability, the knowledge, the trauma, and especially um, within Indigenous communities in Canada, which Indigenous communities all over the world, Indigenous communities in North America, um, but we have, you know, right now we're talking about reconciliation. It's everywhere you go, we see governments, you know, policymakers putting up posters everywhere to make it look like we are understanding Indigenous peoples, that we are empathizing, sympathizing, um, that we are potentially saying, I'm sorry, but it's not, it's very much at a very superficial level right now. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. 
we, and until we start to have these conversations, like you just outlined so clearly that we need to be talking about all of these things, then mm -hmm. we are not going to get very far ahead. If mm -hmm. we just keep it at the superficial level um, around reconciliation or the superficial level of just saying it's obesity and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and lack of exercise that contribute to these diseases, we need mm -hmm. to be talking about this um, at a deeper level. So I appreciate the fact that you brought this up because this is critical. Mm -hmm. Can we thank talk? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. What did? Yeah. Go ahead, please. No, I was just saying thank you. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, and thank you. <laughs> um, so can we actually dive into some of these, um, I think, really important topics a little bit more just to help people understand, you know, we know availability is a massive issue for most people of color because they were disenfranchised from their land, from their foraging practices, from their farming, you know, their own farming practices, not these industrialized farming practices, their own, you know, small scale farming practices um, from gathering. And so obviously accessibility is a huge, huge issue. Um, mm -hmm. And in Canada, and I know in the United States, there is a documentary that just came out called They're Trying to Kill Us by, mm. I don't know if you've had the chance to see it yet, yet. Um, no. by John Lewis, but he talks about the policies that are in place that prevent Black people and Indigenous people from being able to access food. What did you find in your research around accessibility? Yeah, well, you know, that's one of the things that we find, you know, so this is my point. Yes, people cleaned up their diet and are probably living better and productive lives. But you, you know, here again is the why question. What were they able to connect to and with that would, and what other decisions were they making in their lives that helped to lead to this change? I mean, when we ask people, for example, about access, if you think about indigenous people in the United States who have been put largely on reservations, getting access to land that is farmable, you know, becomes um, one of the major issues. I, I used to teach a documentary called Good Meat um, and it was put out by um, the Lakota community and or one of the uh, distributors worked with a, a fellow from the, Lakota community in South Dakota. And, you know, he was trying to get back to an indigenous diet because his mother had died early of diabetes. He was on his way to also, he had a diabetes and was on his way to unhealthy um, practices. And he used to play basketball and all these things. And he said, you know, I wanted to get back to that lifestyle. So I thought I would eat an indigenous diet. Well, here in the US, for example, for him, one of the main ingredients of that diet was buffalo, mm -hmm. you know? And so just the hoops he had to go through just to get a buffalo, he had to petition the Department of Interior, the U.S. Department of Interior, because they own reservation land. Mm -hmm. So let's just start with land access, right? And then he said, um, then he had to, so they had to identify the particular buffalo then, you know, once they hunted it, he had to also pay Gugov's money just to get it treated in, in order for it to be edible. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so, so now you've got the economic factor 
you've got the land factor. And then he said, of course, you know, his relatives who he lived with were like, ah, we're not eating buffalo. (laughs) So now you've got the social factor of eating, you know, all this food by yourself. And then he said, there's a competing element here. And that is that for them, for many of them, um, you had two options. Either they would bring fresh fruits and vegetables to the reservation. And if you in fact bought them, within two weeks, they were gone, right? Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't a lot for the allotment of money they had. Or he said, our family could ride 90 minutes to Walmart and and we could buy a lot more for our money. The problem was, he said, my sisters are heavily influenced by their kids and their kids want sugary, Mm -hmm. sweet, you know. So you've got all again of these social and economic factors um, that go into our everyday food decisions. So access being yes, one, then also you have to remember taste, um, desirability. Among our aging populations, a lot of times they stop wanting to eat. Mm -hmm. Um, For people who have mental health and other needs to take medication, um, sometimes they're not hungry. Um, And so now you have to stimulate appetite. So there are so many factors, is my point, that go into food making decisions that I think it's unwise for us to say, you know, simply if you would change your diet, you will live a better life. That's almost, you know, just not true. It will certainly contribute to that. But you also have to add some other things. Mm -hmm. You can live your best life of eating here in the United States but go to work every day and deal with various aggressions and have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. You know, you could eat a salad every day. That's your main meal. And on your way home, you can get stopped at a street light, end up finding yourself arrested, can't make bail. And now you're thrust into the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And I don't exaggerate I that know. these issues happen daily to black people, black and brown people living in the United States. You can be a migrant who has traveled for days to arrive in the state of Florida. And the next thing you know, you are bound for Martha's Vineyard, which you have no idea where that is. And you have no idea what you're supposed to do when you get there. And you are completely, you know, um, befuddled because Mm -hmm. you have been tricked you know, in the land of the free and the home of the brave into going into a place where you um, further north than you had ever anticipated without any of the resources you were promised. For the hundreds of thousands of millions of Black people watching that experience, we were like, yeah, we know what that's like. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in our lineage, we know what it's like to be taken somewhere against your will. Mm -hmm. And so... (laughs) As the United States deals with the North American or the U.S. in particular deals with the sort of changing same, I think it's absurd for us to put all of this onus on food. Mm-hmm. It really is when you think about it. Well, no, a hundred percent. And um, and one of the pieces that you touched on as well, which is a very important part, is the trauma as well, the intergenerational historic trauma and you know and until we address that too then 
just to simply go and say, you know, especially because it does feel like when we just focus on food, it's almost as though it, it's just another oppression in itself, just to say, it's just the diet. It really is. And it's designed that way again, because it, it keeps our focus. It keeps us riled up. It's easy on some level um, in the grand scheme of things. It's easier to attack people's food than it is to attack systems of of racial and, and gender and, uh, you know, sexual orientation oppression. Right. I mean, if you again, if you're following U.S. politics right now, we know how difficult it is just to get people who clearly are guilty but who don't look like you or me convicted of any kind of crime. And so if you're dealing with that on a day-to-day -day basis, that level of um, just gross inequality and injustice, like I said on a podcast recently, how dare we blame you know, our deaths on food? How dare we? Um, especially when I'm looking at states like Flint, Michigan, or cities like Flint, Michigan, states like Mississippi that still don't have running water and we're trying to raise money um, to, to improve the water conditions uh, for their citizens and their residents. I mean, we've got so many environmental factors here in the United States that are killing people, mm -hmm. you know, that food becomes swept up in that because, you know, our soil supply is damaged, our water supplies are damaged, our in infrastructure is crumbling, you know, and then again, as you say, you think about the trauma. I'm thinking now about Hurricane Ian and how it has come through Puerto Rico and once again devastated that island, how it has also hit Florida um, and now South Carolina and some of the most vulnerable residents who are unable to leave from those areas during these kinds of pending and looming catastrophes are either swept away literally and killed, mm -hmm. or they're gonna get caught up in some other kinds of months long, maybe years long traumas where they have no home to return to. They have no substantive um, and viable means of getting food. And if they do, it's going to be fast food or you know, not good food. I mean, you know, Chef Andre, I mean, he does a fabulous job going around and, and providing food, but these things are not long-term, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, you know, it, it really does become a matter of, and then you have governments that say, well, we wash our hands of it. But, and yet they're the ones who are passing policies that make it difficult to control factors that could help most of us live much more sustainably wonderful thriving lives so as i hear you speak the question that comes up for me is what do we do how do we ever you know i could do a podcast with you on each of these topics that are 90 minutes long just on each of these topics we would do like 15 different <laughs> podcasts alone and so just to help individuals understand um the intricacies of this very complex system and at the same time when i say those words complex i also at the same time feel like the solution is not necessarily complex like it actually 
you know, almost could be as simple as two people sitting down and having a conversation like we are having as well to have a conversation about these really important topics about the history of food, about the history um, of, you know, Black people in America, Indigenous people in America. But in this fast-paced world where there's a million podcasts coming out every single day and a million books coming out every single day, where do we start? How do, where do we move from here? Right. Well, I do think it, part of the start is to have these open, earnest conversations. That's number one. Number two, recognizing that these um, systems are interconnected. Um, it does not benefit the health world, the pharmaceutical world, um, the capitalist environment in which we live for people to live healthy lives. Because if we lived healthy lives, then, hey, who's going to buy all the medicines? over-the-counter and prescriptive, right? Um, who's going to populate our hospitals because they have um, things like a pandemic that then fuels another kind of disease that we didn't even know existed and then so forth and so on. What I do think people can do, and I talk about this in the closing chapter of my book, um, Eating While Black, I talk about eating in the meantime right? While we're waiting for all these things to shift and change, what do we do, right? One of the things I ask is that people stop shaming other people for the food decisions that they make mm -hmm. and recognize that, again, people are most of the time doing the best they can to live in these particular spaces in which they live in the host of factors. I will say again, the host of factors that all of us entertain on a daily, minute by minute basis around food are so varied from if you have children, if you're a caretaker to your own individual self, to your own cultural uh, you know, background, to what tastes good. I mean, just the, a, a, a whole conglomerate. And so I walk away saying, encourage people uh, to eat foods that are going to be socially and culturally sus sustainable. So for me, in my culture, um, being from the, the South in the U.S., things like, uh, and also a product of, of the Northeast, being growing up in Buffalo, things for me that are very familiar and are satiating, you know, salad, you know, if I do mac and cheese or wingettes or what have you, to always balance out how and what I'm eating. Um, there are times, however, in my life, as I, I shared with some folks at a recent book talk, there are times that I have to, you know, I got to do what I have to do. When I was trying to complete my book because I knew that two years later I needed my child um, to get into college somewhere, and I was going to be paying the brunt of that tuition, so I needed to get through promotion. You see what I'm saying? There's a whole lineage of things I'm thinking about. So that meant I had to get this book done. Every night, we picked a different country that we ate from, <laughs> and we were falling out. So we were Thai one night, we were Chinese another night, we were school yes. food another night. We were, I mean, that's the reality of our lives, yeah. because I was on a massive deadline. My child was not about to cook dealing with her own issues. And so I had to figure out what was going to be the best way for us to get there. Does that end up taking a toll? Absolutely it uh -huh. does. 
but yet you are weighing costs every single day. So how do we help people not feel guilty about eating in the meantime mm -hmm. while we're waiting for all these changes to take place? It's okay, I argue, if people have to buy food out for a short period of time. It's And I do say short because mm -hmm. ultimately you're dealing with all kinds of, you know, um, preservatives and stuff that you would rather know more about what's in your food. It's okay if people have to buy food um, from what we call dollar stores um, because they can't afford um, big box stores or they don't have the transportation to big box stores. Um, hopefully they're also able to buy at least one or two things that are gonna represent the plant life world, right? But we know again, from being here in the US, that now people are hearing that beyond meat, beyond burger, those things are not good for you, you know? So folks who have died on the sword of soy are learning that tofu has problems. Then you're finding out Saitan's a problem. Now you're, in a minute, we're gonna be yeah. eating air. So, I mean, you know, yeah. we, we all have to be very clear that there's nothing here that's pure. Mm -hmm. That's really, I think, key. There's nothing that's pure and fail safe. Mm -hmm. It's foolproof. You know, I've got all the, there's nothing. For one, because we're living amidst climate change. We're mm -hmm. living amidst times when, again, tomatoes that my mom used to be able to produce from the soil that looked a very particular way and tasted lovely are now just like eating cardboard. Yeah. Sometimes even when I'm getting them from the farmer's market and they look like my mom's did when she grew them, they still just don't taste the same because the soil is different. In the yeah. 90s, when I interviewed my cousin who grew up as a sharecropper, she told me in the 90s, she was like, you used to could kill a hog and the whole community would eat for weeks and months and maybe into the, through the winter. Mm -hmm. She was like, because we could just eat hog grease with some biscuits. You know, she's like, you can't do that now. In the 90s, she said, you can't do that now. Stuff will kill you. Mm -hmm. So as we are constantly, you know, um, evolving as, as, as societies and more and more industrialization, more and more ways to, to infiltrate the earth um, in ways that are not safe, in ways that are not productive for the earth to sustain itself, we're all going to be in a tizzy. So why are we shaming people? Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think that's a, yeah, it's a really, really important um, point that you bring up that part about the shaming, because in doing this research, I really saw that a it's a, and I've always known it's much bigger than food because I work with clients one on one and I we do we have to get into economically, socially, culturally, what's happening in your world. Um, environmentally, if you live next to a nickel mining factory and they're spraying, spraying, you know, glyphosate on the farm next to you, and I'm encouraging them to eat more real unprocessed whole foods, um, then, you know, while these toxins are still coming in and while the stress from family life is still coming in, like we have to address it all. So I do see that and it does take working one-on-one -on -one with an entire family. I never just work with the individual. I work with the entire family. And then we have to build systems in the community to support their healing as well. Because if they do have kids, there's no way they're going to be able to cook, you know, three meals a day of, you know, 100% organic plant-based whole food. So I have seen the systemic nature of healing, but what 
really what I hadn't looked at was that intergenerational trauma. What I hadn't looked at was um, the potential shaming, even though I think most of my clients would know that I'm not intentionally shaming them, but I do know that once people discover that there's another way of eating, once they discover that, you know, the refined processed boxed food that, you know, they were buying because it was cheap, it was affordable, it would taste good, all of that, that there is that element of just feeling guilty from the awareness of the way that, you know, it could be versus the way that it is being done. But then also it's much bigger because it's not like they intentionally did that to themselves. It wasn't that they intentionally were like, but it's the marketing, you know, that, you know, we've been marketed to, we've been told these foods are healthy, just like right now we're being told the Impossible Burger is the healthy way out of our problems. Um, so anyway, you're, this this conversation around shame is landing very, very deeply with me. Um, yeah, and I should just say that it, it does, yes, and we also have to be mindful, you know, Nicolette, we have to also be mindful that people come from everywhere, right? And so then migration comes into play here. There's a great article that I have to find, but as you were talking, it reminded me, I think it's a Bengali scholar who's writing about living in Boston and how packaged food in their particular community is highly valued um, because it's a symbol of American progress. Yes. And so we also have to, you see what I'm saying? That's what I mean by it's so complicated because you can speak all day long and say it's not healthy, blah, blah, blah. But perhaps the way they cook it is because they may be using a lot of cumin and cardamom and turmeric and mm -hmm. other kinds of vegetables. spices that yeah. and vegetables that offset. So this is why I say we have to be very, it, it, it's a lot more work than we have been led to believe in that we tend to tell other people. I've had people say to me, growing your own food is next to heaven on earth. And I'm like, for whom? Yeah. Because once you wade through all of the historical and cultural issues that some communities have from the Chicanos to, you know, again, uh, Southeast Asians to Black folks in America to, to the Asian Americans to indigenous people, you know, for some people, yes, not everybody wants to grow their own food. Some people are better at cooking. Some people are better at harvesting. Some people are better at planting seeds alone, you know? And so even in that, we have to unpack it. What do you mean by grow? Uh -huh. You know, some folks are like, I'm capable of, you know, putting some basil out on my deck and that's it. And I water it every day. Is that enough though? Mm -hmm. because you'd have purists who, and many folks who would say, no, it's not enough. You need to grow more. Well, I can't grow anything more because I'm going to forget about it every day. And I've got, you know, five kids I've got to care for, or I have to travel an hour to my job. I just, you know, so I'm doing the bare minimum, or I have a house full of faux plants because I love the look and everything, but I know I can't take care of plants because I don't have time. 
food decisions are intensely personal. Yes. Oh, and, <laughs> and I they, know. <laughs> and, and they're so full of different variations yeah. that, yes, once you have, have found a healthy way of eating for yourself and you're feeling great, you want other people to feel it too. And I think that's that's wonderful. Except this person's life is not that person's life. Yeah. And everybody doesn't tell everything. Like I said, right? You don't know this person's lactose intolerant. That person is not. This person, you know, is gluten-free. This person, you know, loves gluten. It, there are so many different variations. So I try to encourage people to eat in the meantime, in the way that is going to be satiating and satisfactory and um, help you feel good. Your body will tell you when it doesn't like a thing, right? Your body's going to tell you. I'm rejecting that. Well, um, I like that you bring that up though, because I've had a lot of clients say, well, I eat intuitively and like, I'm listening to my body, but we are in a world where, you know, I do have clients who say, oh, I eat those vegetables and they make me gassy or, mm -hmm. and, you know, so there's this, well, I can only eat chicken and white rice because everything else makes me bloat and everything else mm -hmm. makes me you know, so we're also in this world where, but what happens is with my clients is we slowly get them back to eating whole foods and their body adjusts and their microbiome develops and they don't even know what a microbiome is. And I ask my clients a lot, do you know what a mm -hmm. cell is? And they don't know what, mm -hmm. like if the human cell is or what it does, or that they're made up of 33 mm -hmm. trillion of them. So there, you did bring up knowledge when you were saying, you know, availability, accessibility, affordability, it's not just food, it's marketing the trauma and knowledge and lack of knowledge, mm -hmm. like in how to cook food or what food is. So can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah. And there are different knowledges. I mean, you know, there's, there's knowledge of how to cook certain foods. There's knowledge of your body. There's also knowledge of region. I'll give you an example that I use in the book. I was visiting a colleague in the um, Southwest we had gone to graduate school together. She was vegetarian the whole time she was in the Northeast. She moved to the Southwest and began just feeling lethargic. I mean, she said there were days I couldn't pick my head up off the pillow, mm -hmm. okay. Went to multiple doctors, had multiple blood work done, so forth and so on. Finally, I think after a couple of years, actually, one of her doctors said, I know you're a vegetarian, but try some um, red meat. She was, you know, adamant, I'm a vegetarian, but anyhow, long story short, she tried it. And over time, she started feeling 100% better. This is what I mean by knowledge and regional knowledge. It's very possible that her body in the Northeast responded very differently to climate mm -hmm. and so forth than it did in the Southwest. And so sometimes our principles don't meet up with our lives. Uh -huh. Okay. I remember flying from Maryland out to Davis, California, which it has a much higher elevation. And I, I don't know if I had taken my shoes off on the plane or what, but by the time I got off the plane, whatever shoes I had on could no longer fit. And we uh -huh. immediately had to go to a running store so I could get some shoes. And so the guy was like, where are you coming from? And I said, you know, the Washington DC area. He was like, you, you're flying across multiple altitudes. Now, there could have been some salt factors in there, no doubt, mm -hmm. you know, 
um, or what have you. He said, so you should just be mindful of that, um, that elevations and altitudes could also make a difference. So that's part of the knowledge, which oftentimes we don't come upon until we are in a place. So if I've migrated from not just within the intercontinental United States, but outside the United States, then my caloric intake in Malawi, for example, may be very different than my caloric intake in Canada, very different from it in, in the Mississippi Delta, mm -hmm. right? And so I encountered that experience working with the Pregnancy Aid Center where they said, we have a very difficult time with some of our international trans-migrant communities because we're trying to help them to see the caloric intake is very different. And we're trying to calculate what that difference is in terms of calories. Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't know the caloric intake of fufu or TZ or, you know, igusi or what have you, <laughs> it's very difficult to make that translation you know, to people who are pretty much operating off of an American diet. When my, um, you know, former spouse would run out of um, plantain fufu or pounded yam fufu, he would have cream of wheat because the taste was very similar. Mm -hmm. Was caloric intake the same? Probably not, but the consistency was, right? And so again, there are these knowledge factors that we want to take into consideration that don't just involve taste, but involve region and also involve how to cook foods. If you've had any experience cooking Brussels sprouts, and, and I've had guests at my house and I've had, you know, sauteed Brussels sprouts with a little honey and balsamic vinegar and, all, you know, in ways that make them very palatable and crispy. And I've had people absolutely not, I will not eat a Brussels sprout. Okay, because their experience before just won't even allow cognitively for them to, you know, they're going to, whatever they put in their mouth, that Brussels sprout is going to taste like it did 10 years ago, not like what they're eating now. Same is true with okra and other kinds of, of vegetables. And so the knowledge piece is very broad. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we only assign it to cooking as opposed to, like I said, your own health um and digestive system yeah um and also where you are located in whatever country you're in um and then just your body i'll just say this last thing for around for example around lactose there are some people who can who can eat cheese but can't drink milk yeah and figuring that out for yourself because you really do like pizza, but you hate cauliflower, cauliflower crust, <laughs> you know, um, it takes time as well for people. And, and most of the time, I read something a long time ago from a historian. She said, the ability to experiment with food is the, per, is the parameter and is, the, is in the realm of the wealthy. Uh -huh. People right. who are living every day on a fixed income don't have the luxury to yeah. play around with a lot of different foods. They're going to go with what they know. Mm -hmm. So how do we help people eat in the meantime in ways that they know that can also help them to be healthy? And I don't just mean in terms of their body. I mean, I mean in terms of their mind, their body, and their soul. Mm -hmm. Because health is not relegated to one's physical existence. Yeah. 
Exactly. And, you know, you remind me of two things. Number one is uh, the Vegan Soul Sisters, a really beautiful organization that was started by a woman who had health issues and she discovered vegan food. She's African-American. She's from Tennessee. And with it, almost overnight, she grew, you know, a community of 60,000 people, probably more now. Mm-hmm. But in scrolling through the Facebook, um, you see that all these individuals are moving towards a vegan diet, but it's all processed refined food. It's all, but then you also see it. So it would be really easy for me to judge and go, oh my God, which I did. I, I did panic a little bit because I'm like, it's all this processed stuff that it's not really even food. But then at the same time, though, when you look at the conversations, you also see a lot of individuals are on a very fixed budget, you know, where it's just maximum a couple hundred dollars a month for food. Um, you know, like $50 a week. And so a lot of individuals are talking about how they can buy vegan food from Walmart. And so there's this, you know, we're moving right now very quickly in and within and through, I hope, you know, where we're looking externally for the answers versus internally, like where you say connecting with your mind, your body, your soul, your culture, your history to, you know, decide what it is that's right for you based on as well, the region that you're living in. I also remember living in Mississippi when I went to university there and talking about region, right? Knowledge of region. Well, the knowledge that I didn't have about that region when I went, because I was only 19 years old when I went, was that there was a lot of pesticides sprayed. We were right next to the, we are in the Mississippi Delta. I was getting sick constantly. I'd never been sick ever before. Um, like other than the common cold or, you know, never even had the flu. And I was hospitalized multiple times when I was down there for severe strep throat infection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we could say, well, is it the partying? Is it the drinking? Is it the, you know, and for sure that could play a role in it. But when the doctors there told me, they were like, no, actually it's the pesticides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the knowledge of the region is important because someone could think that, well, it's their diet. And it was probably that coupled with my diet because I had never eaten so much delicious fried food ever in my entire life. And, you know, even trying to eat a salad in the deep South in Mississippi, I mean, it really wasn't the healthiest food at all. (laughs) Right. So I do appreciate that you brought up knowledge of the region where knowing what I know now, I would be able to go there and choose foods that were culturally appropriate there, but I would know how to change them up and ask for different things, you know, and be able to stay healthy. But would I be able to ward off the strep throat because of the amount of pesticide and glyphosate in the Mississippi River and in the air? Yeah, so, you know, you raised some really, really, really good points. And I mean, even so, I, I guess kind of as I'm wrapping up my thoughts, it would be to say, we, we should do the work we do as nutritionists and as health advocates, et cetera. But I need our conversations to be expanded. Mm-hmm. And that means more work, quite yeah. frankly. And yet when we shorthand these conversations and say, you just need to do X, Y, and Z, it becomes problematic because as I was just sharing and as you've reiterated, it could be the region that's killing you, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and everybody we know cannot afford to live 
in a pure farming existence in upstate New York or in wherever you may be. If that was the case, Black folks would have gotten their 40 acres and a mule a long time ago. Yeah. Our society is not designed that way. It's not designed for there to be, for us to be healthy. And so the it really isn't. Because if you think about the medical establishment and you think about the pharmaceutical establishment, you know, you know, folks were freaking out about the pan about the vaccines, right? Oh my God, where did they come with you? How did they develop it so fast? I'm like, well, you do know that's what they do at NIH every day. I mean, they they there's a whole division of infectious diseases, mm-hmm. and they play around with all kinds of strands, and so as more came out about Ebola and blah, 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 blah. I was like, you know, um, and yet that tells you a lot about how we understand society and the world, right? That people thought that a, a vaccine literally was made last like overnight. And so it scared them to no end. And you understand that. And I said, but for anybody who had, for example, watched the film Contagion about a decade ago, then you knew that this was going to happen at some point. And also knew that they were anticipating this, right? And so the whole SARS, you know, space um, has been around for, it's been a long time conversation, but it's not really within the realm of these, um, of our world for everybody to live healthy lives because- then you wouldn't have the haves and you wouldn't have the have nots. And where would the haves be without the have nots? Mm-hmm. Right. And so it, it, and so that's why I say eating in the meantime, because you have to figure out a way that you can try and stay healthy, not just in your body and free of disease, not just in your body, but in your mind that you're not grappling hold of conspiracy theories, you're fighting because now we're dealing with all the mis and disinformation that's going around in the United States and elsewhere. How do you free your mind from that? How do you free your mind from the, the, the toxic elements of social media, which most of us have to rely upon most of the time in order to just figure out different perspectives and our jobs require it? How do you, how do you live in this particular time where food is one element and a large constellation of things that constitute our lives. Mm -hmm. And so I just simply am trying to encourage people, um, especially professionals and, and service providers, let's not put so much pressure on people to change so much, so quickly because that one thing that we're asking them to change may be the thing that's keeping them sane. Mm-hmm. So how do, what are some of the workarounds? What are some of the various ways that we can encourage people? Each is sweet potatoes, each is scallions, each is green beans, but maybe you can, instead of frying them, drenching them in oil, maybe you can lightly pan saute them. Maybe you can oven bake them. Okay, you don't have an oven. Maybe you can toast the oven. You don't have that. Do you have an air fryer? You don't have that. Do you, okay, then put them in the frying pan. Maybe just use less butter. I mean, literally, you have to come down to these micro yeah. kinds of suggestions because you're dealing with different people at different walks of life. You know, and we haven't even touched on people who are unhoused. Uh-huh. This is a very middle and upper middle class conversation, it quite is. frankly. 
Oh, because it is. It saying yeah. that we have it's, food choices. Yeah, yeah saying is, that we have, that's what I was yeah. saying, saying that we have, you know, Ray Tan, when I read that from Ray Tannenbaum, I was like, oh my God, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. People who are on a fixed income, I'm thinking now about my own aging parents and how they oftentimes don't eat. Mm-hmm. Um, not because they're on a fixed income, but because they live apart. And so you're dealing with issues of companionship. Um, I, in any given day, have to go from my mom to my daughter. Did you eat? Did you eat? Did you take your, me- <laughs> did you take your medicine? Did you, you know, so yes, yeah, so <laughs> I'm torn asunder and just like, let me just see if I can just get something so I can stay, stay here to be able to help with both of it. So folks are dealing with a lot. Um, and yeah. let's make food the center of their world, but allow them to enjoy also mm-hmm. what they're eating um, because food is very personal for us and people want to enjoy what they're eating. I really appreciate that conversation. It definitely softens me in a lot of areas. Uh, I would say it also makes me want to completely redo everything that I do. <laughs> entire no not everything I think I've taken a lot of these um these really important topics to heart already like just intuitively without knowing all of the academic research that is behind there is so much on this um but at the same time it's not I don't think it's prevalent within our established medical system it's not established within our for example, elderly aging systems. So when people are moving into retirement homes, you just made me think about that. That also puts up additional barriers to, you know, how we eat Um, opportunities for socializing and for, you know, developing relationships, but then barriers around food. So it's constantly as we move through um, our life and as we age, and mm-hmm. as we have children or as we have different jobs or as we move regions, I mean, all of it, we have to, again, then think about where we are and then create a new plan. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, yeah. it's not one way always at all. And I did love your saying it's not either, or it's, yeah, and exactly. And this brings me back to the last thing that I really felt like I need, I wanted to bring up with you. So you were in, were you responsible for making the documentary or were you interviewed in the documentary, The Invisible Vegan back in 2019? Yeah, I was just a part of it. No, no, that's not at all mine. I was, um, I was, they reached out to me to offer um, some thoughts and, um, and, you know, I was happy to do that and have that conversation. Yeah, yeah I just wanted to bring that up because the Invisible Vegan, it did bring up a really, I think, important um, topic because right now, if you look at who is driving the food movement right now, it is white people. You can, I could probably easily do a study just on this, the number a quantitative study, the number of nutritionists that are telling people across North America what to eat are predominantly white. And we have this entire vegan movement, plant-based whole food movement, which is being driven by white people where the invisible vegan, I love at the very beginning, it really brings people back to understand that people of color, whether you're black, brown, indigenous, you know, white, actually Irish, Scottish, it doesn't matter when we look at our ancestors and the way we ate prior to colonization, it was Mm -hmm. predominantly 
a lot of plant-based food. And if only if you were wealthy, did you have access to all of the meat? And so I did appreciate this documentary and that it was just on your, um, your, your Mm -hmm. resume is something Mm -hmm. you participated in because it is an important topic, but if there's anything that you want to say about the invisible vegan in these last few moments, I would love to know some thoughts that you had about that. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I, you know, the thing I would say is just this, um, I start my book, Eating While Black, um, with an example of a situation that happened in Washington, D.C., where an area metro worker in uniform was eating on the train, and a picture was taken of her by a passenger and posted on social media, a a very shaming uh, incident. But what was interesting to me is that the, the person who was eating when she was asked by this picture taker, taker if she had any comments, she said, worry about yourself. And excuse me, that is now kind of sort of the mantra here. And that is worry about yourself because black and brown indigenous people are the original foragers, right? And I, I remind people that enslavement for black people was over three centuries. It wasn't just the 1800s, which is what most of us are familiar with from the televised view. You had slavery in the 1700s and 1600s, and to some extent, probably in the 15 and 1400s as well. When you think about generations of trauma, farther back than many of us can recall in terms of the great, great, greats, right? Um, you also want to think about how we survived. We didn't come to this country eating scraps. We came to this country with knowledge of berries and nuts and different types of animals. I'm surrounded by forestry. And you mean to tell me if I know how to make pokeweed and I know how to identify pokeweed, I'm not going to pick pokeweed and eat it, mm-hmm. you know, um, as some of my 19th century um, um, archival materials show. You had people, for example, who were fishers and trappers, and they would literally, as they would go about selling these foods and bartering uh, these foods for the person who enslaved them, they also cut off a little for themselves. Like in one case, that slave narrative, um, uh, uh, you know, an ex-slave said, hey, I was a fisherman, but we got tired of eating shad, unsalted and, and unflavored. Um, he said, so what we did was we um, we exchanged it for bacon, you know? So, um, and so I think it's really important that we recognize those histories of black people in America and, and the world over to know that we're not just Um, victims of our circumstance, but that rather we um, have been doing this stuff for a long time, eating off the land, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so I think too, if we know these things, um, then that also helps us um, to survive really, because then we are empowered in many ways to recognize we're not just victims of this circumstances that we find ourselves in urban environments, 
unhealthy environment. We know how to survive. We are resilient. We can, we figure out ways. So if that means you're shopping at the bodega or the gas station or the corner store until you can do better, then do what you have to do because we always have. And I need for us to get up off of people's necks about that. If it means I'm going there and all I can do is get the cabbage leaves because everybody else got the cabbage, then tell me how I can make whatever with the cabbage leaves, whether that's to roll up some rice and ground beef or ground turkey inside the cabbage leaf. And now I have this dish or that dish, or it's just to cut them up and chop them up and pan fry, help people where they are as opposed to always making us feel like we're behind the eight ball because this society does enough of that. Mm -hmm. That is a very strong and powerful way to end this conversation. Um, I have taken up 90 minutes of your time and you have delivered hundreds of hours <laughs> of learning in those 90 minutes. We're going to be sharing all of the links to everything you've provided so much beautiful content, so much beautiful information for people to further their learning and build more awareness around this so that we can all do better every Good. single day. Yeah. As we help every, each day. Other. Every, every day, every day, every day. It's, it's what we do. We try to do the best we can and you know, I try to walk through this life as gently as possible um, because there are a lot of hurting people. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and I just think that food, which is one of many things that we engage with that gives us joy, just should continue to bring us joy in whichever ways it can. Mm -hmm. Because Lord knows, like I said, there's more than enough to keep us out of joy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate your time and interest. Thank you for taking the time to share this all with us because you have done years and years and years of research and by doing this podcast and bringing it all together, it definitely opens up a world for other people and it gives them a place, a springboard to launch off. So I appreciate so much everything that you shared in your time. Thank you for being here today. Thank you.